Spring of Life Fellowship and the vision of changing the world invites you to listen to a message of restoration and strengthening for your life. Let's listen to our guest. It is my turn to teach. And uh, we have such a wonderful worship service, you know. I mean, I just want to say that the answer, we have uh, put, the, put that slide up there, the foundation, family is a foundation, world-changing foundation um, of the family. This is a theme, you know, that the pastor has been bringing. This is what he's been talking about. And uh, in the work that I do, I'm all about the family, and I, I've seen so many uh, uh, beautiful stories, you know, of God restoring families in, in church, in my uh, psychiatric practice. Um, and I've seen a lot of struggles. I've seen a lot of families really have a hard time trying to put things back together. So whenever we touch on these themes, it's very difficult because I was telling uh, somebody, you know, I want to be like Joel Olstein. I want to go, you're victorious, you're a conqueror, go change the world, you know, and, and you guys live, live here skipping, you know, with joy. But when it comes to the theme of the family, it's a hard topic, right? How many say amen? It's tough, you know, but, you know, my background and my training is, you know, identifying signs and symptoms, you know, that are causing somebody to be dysfunctional or sick or not be able to work and, and have relationships and then uh, make some form of diagnosis or identify why the problem is there and then come up with a treatment, right, to bring that person to healing, to physical well-being, to mental well-being. And so that's just me, you know. I'm always looking for the problem, you know. And, uh, but tonight, I just want to say the treatment has been the same, is the same, and will always be the same. For any illness, physical, emotional, spiritual illness, there is one treatment, and it's always the same. It hasn't changed. What is it? Jesus. So I love when they were saying Jesus, and they were just saying that name in the worship, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus. So as I share tonight, one thing permeates through this whole church and in the lives of everybody in here, and that's the name of Jesus, and he is the answer, you know. And so as I talk and I identify certain situations and, and issues that the family is struggling with, you know, it, it is a struggle. It is a challenge, no doubt. But Jesus is the answer, and Jesus was the answer for my family you know, that I grew up in, mom and dad, 30 years ago. Jesus restored their marriage, not a psychologist, not a psychiatrist, not a, a priest, not, you know. It was Jesus. And, and every day from you guys, I hear the stories of how Jesus restored your marriage. And I promise you, I am available for those people that, you know, are stuck and, and, and are having trouble getting out of the, the muck and getting back on their feet, you know, restoring. But you guys that have seen me and we've talked about this, you guys know that I will always point you to Jesus because with the pills, with the counseling, with the therapy, if you take Jesus out of picture, you're not going anywhere fast. Amen? And so uh, many times we have the option as, as, as doctors, you know, to put a Band-Aid on the problem and sing your way and say everything's okay. But uh, we have that option, right? And some people are happy with a Band-Aid. But if you want a cure, it's Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're coming from a broken family. It doesn't mean if you're struggling with a broken family. It doesn't matter if your children are lost, if, if your mother's lost, if your dad's lost. It, you know, it doesn't matter. Jesus is always the answer. And anybody that tells you anything different, 
they're lying. They're liars, you know, and, and uh, the power of prayer, the spirit of God to come into a home and transform the lives, transform the hearts. Only God could get to the soul of man. Psychology means the study of the soul of man. We don't know squat. We don't know anything about the soul of man. We pretend to know, but we're tainted with a bunch of our own philosophy and theories and a lot of our own personal experiences that kind of taint everything that we know in psychology. But God is crystal clear. He knows you. The Bible says that the word of God is like a double-edged sword that penetrates to the deepest part of your body, separating what is the spirit from the emotions, the soul from the spirit, you know, and brings transformation to that place. No psychologist, no psychiatrist, nobody could do that but Jesus. Amen? So bear with me tonight, okay, because uh, we got some powerful information that I want you guys to uh, carry home with. And part of this is this. You guys know the pastor's passion is the family, right? And he comes up here, and you can almost see him oozing out of him like, guys, we need to change the world. The family is getting lost or being destroyed. And I see that, and I'm like, amen, amen, amen. You know, and he just wants to put it out there. So today I'm going to give you some concrete facts and and, 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 and things that, that we know as a society, we know that the family, the broken family is a problem, but we come up with the wrong solutions. Only the church has a solution, and that's the pastor's point. You guys are the solution to the world. We have the whole counsel of God writing your hands in your Bible. And so don't shut up. Don't be quiet. Don't stay home. Go out and vo uh, vote, scream. You know, people are working saying, you know, uh, blah, blah, and talking nonsense. And you know it's nonsense. Say, no, Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Look what the word of God says. Take him to the word of God. And so that is a solution for all of our ailments is Jesus. Amen. All righty. So let's go. Uh, Christina, could you put up uh, the second chapter of Judges for me back there? The men are meeting on Monday nights. And part of uh, restoring, saving the family, reaching our communities for God and restoring the families and communities is men get together Monday nights. And there's about uh, over a, a hundred to over a hundred men that get together and we're reading the book of Judges, and there's something that jumped out uh, when we read chapter 2. I think we're on chapter 6 now. Um, and, and it says here, Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal uh, to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. So obviously, this is a, a, a different people, right? So God's saying, look, I'm with you guys. I took you guys out, and I'm bringing you out. And my covenant is with you, right? So God is selecting them. God is saying, you're my people. You're different. You're my people. We have a covenant. We have a deal. Now you're going into this land. And what does it say? Verse 2. It says, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land, and you shall tear down their altars. So God told them, you know, as you go into this land, as you come into this new country, Egypt, um, you know, they, he took them out of Egypt. As you're coming into this new land, I want you to pay specific attention not to make covenants, not to make close, intimate relationships with these people because you are different. He said, tear down the altars. Altars many times uh, were a place of worship, right? So if you have an altar in the church, it's because you come, you kneel down, and you worship in the altar. So this land that he was going into, these people were going into, there were altars that were established and built. And he said, do not go worship at those altars. Do not go participate in those altars. On the contrary, what does he say? Tear it down. God gave him that commandment when they came to this land. But he says, but you have not obeyed my voice. 
Why have you done this? And when we think about America specifically, the United States of America, when we think about the world uh, in general, there are altars that men have built, right? Right now, what's one of the big altars that everybody is worshiping right now, like following and talking about and whatever? What's one of those altars that we're all kind of worshiping at right now is a World Cup, right? I mean, you can't hear people talking enough about it, you know? Uh, they, they, they actually call in sick because they want to watch one of the afternoon games, you know? So they're calling in sick, they're staying home watching soccer games, you know? So they neglect their work, you know? They're, they're going out with the buddies, they're neglecting family time, they're neglecting time with the children, whatever, because they're going to go watch soccer. Now there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. There really isn't. There's nothing wrong with sports. I love sports. But entertainment is becoming an issue in the United States. Would you guys agree? Entertainment. It's all about LeBron opted out. Ooh, you know, it's like the end of the world. My family's falling apart. I haven't seen my dad in 20 years. My mom wants nothing to do with me, you know, whatever. But LeBron opted out, you know, and that becomes a theme. And everybody's going to the Twitter, you know, and the Instagram, and they're looking at it, and they're seeing LeBron opted out. So entertainment is becoming a problem in this country. It's be, you know, we're neglecting many other things at the cost of entertainment. I'm the first one, I'll admit. Okay, verse 3. It says, Therefore also say you will not drive them out before you, but they shall be thorns in your side, and the gods shall be a snare to you. So God is saying, because you're a different people, because you're, you're, you're not like everybody else, I want you to go in, tear down the altars, do what I've called you to do, continue to do the things that you've learned, you know, and be an influence on all these people. But because you have knelt at the altars of these people, that the altars and the people's gods will be a thorn in your side. And so many times we complain that, you know, my son doesn't want to talk to me. He ignores me. He rejects me. He doesn't want to come home. He says, it's because for years we've worshiped at the altar of this entertainment industry, of Hollywood, of sports, of entertainment. We don't bring our children to church. We don't teach them what they ought to know, what is good, what is right, what comes first. We've taught that for years. And then when they grow up, they want nothing to do with us. It becomes kind of like a thorn in our side. And then parents come running to church. Please pray for us because my son, my daughter, they don't want to see us. They don't want to talk to us. They don't want whatever. Well, it's because maybe when they were growing up, their priorities were not in place. They were kind of out of place. And so now, you know, it becomes like a thorn in your side. And God doesn't want us to walk around with thorns in our side. On the contrary, he wants us to do what's right, what he's called us to do, so that we can enjoy our children as they grow. We can enjoy their families, their wives, and then grandchildren, and so on and so forth. And so that's God's idea with his people is to save us from the snare and the thorns of the world within which we live, right? Does that make sense? And it's no different. He did it way, 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 way back in the Old Testament, and he's calling us to that today, to kind of be different, be separate, not fall for the same traps and snares as everybody else around us is falling because God has blessing for us in our families. So, okay, so um, we're going to go ahead and start the, the PowerPoint presentation now, but I'm going to say a prayer because I've learned working in the sound back there that when you pray, that's their cue to start the recording. Amen. So let's go ahead and pray and ask God to be with us this evening. Father God, we bless your name. We thank you uh, for this opportunity to be able to um, speak about your things, Lord, and just learn at your altar, Lord, what it is that we ought to do, Father God, and that we know what to pray for, Father God, because many times we're not there yet and we still have a ways to go, but that's okay because you have our back, God, and that's why we're here tonight, Lord, because we just want to surrender our lives to you, Lord, put our lives in your hands, Lord, and trust that you will direct us, you will guide us in the, in the, towards the right place, Father God. We ask you that you bless every single family represented here tonight, Lord, that you will continue to restore and renew every family that's here tonight, Father God. 
that you would mend marriages, Father God, and father-son relationships, Lord, and father-mother, daughter-mother, Father God, that you would just mend the relationships and restore them to the place that you would have them be, Father God, for your glory and your honor, Lord. We surrender this service tonight to you, Lord, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. All right. So here we go. 1 Peter 2.9. And for those of you that, that forgot, uh, Judges is way back in the Old Testament, right? So 1 Peter 2.9 is in the New Testament. So now, you know, God is speaking to the church through Peter. God is telling the church uh, through Peter. He's saying, now, not only was Israel a special people to me, but he says, look what it says here. I, I love this verse. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. So you are. And it's not in a way to brag or be arrogant or have a chip on their shoulder. It's a way to know how you have to conduct yourself, correct? Because if you're an ambassador of, of, a, of a kingdom and you go visit someplace, you know that you have to conduct yourself in a certain way. You have to dress a certain way. You have to obey the traffic laws because if you get in trouble, you know, it, it, you, they're not having trouble with you. They're having trouble with the country that you represent. It becomes a big deal. And so uh, just like the ambassador that was killed in Benghazi, they didn't kill just anybody. They killed a representative of the United States of America, an ambassador. And that's why it's such a big deal. So this is not so you walk around with a chip on your shoulder. This is so that you know how to conduct yourself. When we're out there doing what we do, right? And I love what it says in the King James. I love this word. It says, but ye, ye. How I many of you guys love that? Yeah, we're so Christian. You had to read the King James Version, right? So, but ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, which means a nation separated for God's use, a peculiar people. How many of you have heard that word peculiar? What does that mean? Different in a special way, right? Like Bush would say peculiar. No, how do we say nuclear? No, I don't know. But that word peculiar, it's a funny word. It's hard to say, but it means that you're different in a special way. You're just not the same. And so when I'm at work and I'm working, I'm together with all the other psychiatrists and all the other staff, I'm standing there and I'm peculiar, you know? I'm different, you know, so they're talking like this, they're saying that, they're using certain words that I'm like, whew, I remember I used to say that, I used to talk just like that, but now I'm peculiar, you know, so now I got to conduct myself and carry myself differently, you know, uh, people like come into work and do their thing and don't really work, kind of waste time, kind of whatever, you know, and, and that's fine because that's the world we live in, that's about average, right, but I'm peculiar, right, I'm different, I'm separated for a special purpose. And so when I go to work, I've had employers tell me, the people at Texas Tech, they said, you know, Jules, you know, we're sorry, you know, we made a mistake, you know, we're going to pay you more if you come back, you know. And what I, go, I wasn't there for the money, and I didn't leave because of the money, you know, because I'm peculiar, right? Most people do it for the money, but I do it because... God has a purpose for me there. And while I was there, I touched life and I influenced people. And when God said, you guys are done in Texas, in Lubbock, he brought us back to Miami. Now I'm here with you guys today. And I don't know if I'm going to be here in five years, but I'm here today because I'm peculiar. God has a special place for me here in this church. And so, and, and while sometimes I don't understand the big, thank you, B. While I don't understand the big plan and God's big purpose, I just know you got to carry, you guys like touch yourself right here and say, I'm peculiar. You're different. 
you guys are different. When Ashley was applying for, you know, uh, to get into school, to get accepted, and all the stress of getting accepted, whatever, and I was writing her her recommendation letter, I said, God, she's peculiar. She has no idea how many doors you're going to open for her. Before she knows it, she'll be serving in a very high capacity in a hospital somewhere, being a leader, you know, somewhere, because she's peculiar. She has a purpose. You have a plan for her, you know? And so when you walk around and when you conduct yourself the way you do, just know that you're peculiar. You're different, okay? So now the things that I'm going to talk about are the things that we see in the world that are common, that are commonplace, and it's going to explain a lot of why things are happening the way they're happening. Why? Because we have the antidote. So as you talk with people and share with people whatever, you know where to target. You know where the illness is. Even though they put up a big facade and they got it all together and, you, you know, they, they come across looking very professional and they walk around campus like they're the studs, you know, I was partying all week, you know. They, no. That's all a facade. And you guys are going to get some answers tonight, some weapons, some tools so you can reach these people, right? But also so you can do some introspection into your own life. When I do these things, believe me, I have more fingers pointing my way than your way, you know, because as I teach these things, I do introspection. Have I been on par with that? Am I excellent in the area? Am I falling back? Am I letting it slide? And my wife is, is, is a great help. She helps me, you know, when I'm sliding, she says, Jules, you know, you've been in front of that TV too long, you know? Yeah, I mean, basketball, basketball, honey, it's the playoffs, you know? She helps me, you know, and it's true. And these aren't things that, that are, let's say, like uh, some of the more serious things, but these are things that will begin to affect your spiritual life and will begin to affect your relationships in your family, will begin to affect your relationship with your wife, with your children, with your cousins, with your brothers and sisters from church, you know? So we always got to keep things in perspective and balance. God first, God number one, fellowship, you know, the spiritual, and then God with his grace allows us to enjoy the playoffs every once in a while, right, honey? All right. Okay. So here we go. In the beginning, right, the family. Uh, who designed the family? Whose idea was it? It was God's idea. Family wasn't a word that politicians came up with. This was God's idea. Who designed marriage? Who created marriage? This was not the politician's idea. So they cannot redefine what family is and what marriage is. This is God's design. So in the beginning, a long time ago, before any of us existed and all these politicians, God said, this is what a family looks like. This is what a marriage looks like. So we're going back there a little bit to look at what is the foundation of the family. Well, that was fast. <clears throat> so God created man and woman, uh, one for the other in Genesis 2, verses 7 through 25. You could read that. He commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And this union, this first institution that God created would be the root that would give rise to many, many nations. So God is the one that started it. So when uh, I would have trouble in my marriage, you know, and, and I thought, man, I thought I knew it all, you know. I really did, you know. I went to Bilgotha like eight times, you know. I mean, I, I, was, I was a psychologist. I was in medical school. I, I mean, I thought I knew it all. But, man, when I had trouble in my marriage, I didn't have the answers, you know. So if I couldn't reach my brother, I couldn't reach, you know, somebody else, whatever, to call, I would just look up and say, God, this is your idea. You designed this. I'm stuck. You really got to help me because I don't know what to do. You know, and I would throw it back. I said, this is your idea. You know, how could you come up with such an absurd idea sometimes, you know? But it's his idea, and it challenged me, and it forced me to change, and it wasn't fun, but it was God's design. So we could always look back to God and to his scriptures to know how to do it right. God could have spoken, actually, 
a whole nation into existence. God could have spoken, and there could have been a perfect nation with all its inhabitants, everybody getting along, kumbaya, everybody. But he didn't do that. He really didn't do that. He started with the unit of a family, of a husband and a wife, and then the children. And you know what? Like, when the experiment started, it wasn't the greatest. You guys remember what happened? What happened? Cain killed Abel, right? So the first family, they couldn't blame it on Hollywood because there's no Hollywood. They couldn't blame it on video, violent video games because there's no violent video games or drugs or alcohol. You know, this is a perfect family. They walked and talked with God. And Cain murdered Abel. So this, this institution of, uh, of the family from the get-go, you know, it was a big target of the devil. The devil targeted it from the very beginning because what a powerful institution, you know, that was going to, you know, uh, conduct itself and have a relationship with God. And so it, it's been the devil's target from the beginning. And so, but that unit that God designed, that God created, would be in his design and according to his creation, the basis for many civilizations to come. And so first came the family, okay? First came the family that grows into the community, grows into society, to a nation, and then to many nations, which we call the world, right? We're changing the world. But to change the world, where do you got to start? You got to start in your home. You got to start in your family, okay? The basic unit, the family. And so there is no healthy world, nation, society, community without a healthy family, right? Does that make sense? And more and more today, like, politicians are starting to take note because it's costing them a lot of money, you know, in, in rehab centers and detox centers and jails and prisons. And so now there's a big focus on the families because it is the, the basic unit of society. Amen? And so when God created God and man, you know, he designed the family and from that family grew community, nation, many nations in the world. And this is the order of God. That's why the pastor says a family is a foundation. This is the way it works. God is has to be, as it is in this pyramid, the biggest influence, the most important influence, the influence that holds everything else together, that everything could grow from, and then we could pretty much enjoy life and enjoy what we have today uh, in the world, in society. But things have turned around quite a bit. And what has happened is we have, what are they called? The United Nations, right? The World Health Organization. These are worldwide organizations that they're designing what your children will be doing in 20, 30 years from now, they're actually coming together, you know, and they have an idea to bring everybody under the same uh, processes, you know, so they're trying to bring it in the world. Uh, we have many nations, uh, the United Nations, they get together and they, dis they make decisions for the United States, for Europe, for South America, for Africa, for everybody. We have the community, the family, and God and man is kind of like, not such a huge influence anymore, right? They don't want to talk about God anymore. They really don't. They think they're so smart that they can leave God out of everything, come up with their own solutions, right? Because they studied, they educated, you know, they understand behavioral sciences, they understand medicine, they understand politics and business. So why do we need to run to God? Well, because that's what happens. You kind of turn thing, everything else upside down and things begin to fall apart. And it, this, was, this is basically what's happening in the world. Now, uh, the truth of it is that we've been here before. We've done that. Now, the United States is a very young country. So the United States is experiencing that hardship basically for almost the first time in such a real way. Uh, even though we've had spots in our history that we've had troubles, right? Uh, during the time of World War II when all the men were gone and only the women and the children were left behind. 
the women had to go out and work and produce, so the children were left home alone, and then the children would get creative and do things, and that's when we first uh, described this phenomenon of little people making crimes. Before children used to not make crimes, like, Joseph, how old are you now? 13. Mom's at work. Dad's at war. Joseph's 13, staying home alone with the other 13, 14, 15 years old. He's doing things that he's not supposed to do. No way a kid committing crimes. It was unheard of. So you know what they had to do in this country? They had to make juvenile courts. They had to make little juvenile prisons, which before was unheard of. But their children were kind of left alone. So we've had spots here and there in this country that we've experienced that. But right now, you know, there really is no explanation except for the, the breaking up of the family. And so this is what's happening with the family. So the Center for Disease Control, they were an institution that was created to track and monitor diseases that will kill many people. So they studied what they call epidemiology, which is somebody gets a real bad sickness, and they track that person to the original place of sickness, and then they check and see if anybody else got contaminated so that we could control that, so we don't have these big plagues that existed many, many, many centuries ago. And so they were created specifically for that purpose. But there's been a bunch of studies that show that broken families or single-parent homes, especially in the inner cities, create this phenomenon of youth engaging in risky behavior. So it's undeniable. You can't argue with it anymore. So they came up with this uh, idea of surveilling these risk behaviors in youth, okay? And so the government now is involved in what your son and your daughter is doing, right? And so they, uh, they describe several different behaviors and... You know, I say I'm nearsighted, but I think I'm farsighted also because I can't see that. Could you guys see that otherwise in the big screen? Let me get there here, my notes. So the behaviors that, that uh, they, they were looking or they were tracking, you know, they were tracking behaviors that contribute to unintentional injuries or violence. What, what is that talking about? What's unintentional injury? What is that? That's code for cutting. That's code for overdosing. So they're tracking young people that are hurting themselves unintentionally for unknown reasons. You know, there's really no trigger, no reason that they could be hurting themselves. They're tracking sexual behaviors, promiscuity, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, pregnancy, uh, HIV infection in youth. They're tracking alcohol and other drug use. They're tracking tobacco use. And they just added these recently. It may, it, it may have been, I'm not sure, it may have been... Uh, 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 Ms. Obama, that, that, uh, the first lady that started this, unhealthy dietary behaviors and inadequate physical activity. But before, it used to be those first four. And so these are behaviors that they want to know why young people are engaging in these things. They're not supposed to be. So, um, you know, if they could track this, you know, they could help hopefully come up with solutions. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with trying to fix something that's broken. The only problem is that God designed the family to do this. God designed the mom to surveil her children, the dad to surveil the children. And when the children are doing these risky behaviors and whatever, for the mom and the dad to step in. But because we don't have mom, we don't have dad at home, now the government is having to step in and surveil people's children for them. <clears throat> and so on the next slide, it describes their key strategies. And this is on the website. You can look it up today. It's on the website. These are the key strategies. They are a school base, so they're going to the schools, right? And they have surveillance systems to measure the prevalence of health risk behaviors among adolescents and monitor school health policies and practices to prevent them. So basically what that means is they're going into the schools and they're having these deep, important conversations with your children and they're making them sit for exams and surveys and things to test their involvement in these risky behaviors. Why? 
because they want to foster the delivery of high-quality, evidence-based sexual health education. So they want to teach your kids about sex because in the world, when they talk about um, risky behaviors, you know, uh, it always comes down to sex. They, they really don't have any other thing because for them, everything else pretty much is okay, you know. So for them, but when the church, when I look at my kids, I don't ever start with sex. I start with how are you walking? How are you thinking? How are you talking? How's your devotional life? Why didn't you go to church? Why'd you have a bad attitude? By the time we get to sex, I got a kid who is like in love with God. So my daughter's here tonight. We've talked about sex. It's not a big deal. Sex is not, we'll talk about sex all they want. They know. Sometimes I go, Jules, you know, you're a doctor. To you, it's easy. Sometimes you go over the top. But I don't have a problem talking about sex. But before we talk about sex, I talk about the way they roll their eyes when their mom talked to them. I talk about the way they're not doing their devotions, the way they're not making eye contact with me when they come through the door. What's wrong, honey? What's, what happened? What happened? You know, so, and then, you know, we talk about sex in a healthy, beautiful, amazing context. It's not an issue, right? But in the schools, it's a huge issue. So what has our solution been? Their solution is to deliver high-quality, evidence-based sexual health education, right? This is how you use a condom, right? This is how you use it. Take a couple, because I don't want you to run. Don't leave it in your wallet too long, because it'll deteriorate. Then it can have a whole thing, you know? So this is how they deliver high-quality, evidence-based education. <clears throat> Providing scientific guidance on effective policies and programs to prevent HIV, STDs, and teen pregnancy. They're talking teens, but it, they're, they're already doing it in pre-teens, right? They're already targeting the elementary schools. They figure if they get them early enough, you know, they could prevent them from, you know, these other issues later in life. And that makes sense. But in order to do that, they have to go to the very young kids. So <clears throat> key strategies, number four, increasing youth access to health care services or to health services, including contraceptives, HIV, and STD education. It's basically what says there. So they're, 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 you know, it's okay to have sex. Everybody, you can't expect a young person that is full of testosterone not to sleep around. That's their evidence-based health education. So let's go ahead and provide for them condoms so at least they can be safe. And now they're even providing contraceptives, which is birth control pills and other things. Number five of a key strategy is establishing healthy school environments where all, you feel, where all youth feel safe and supported, including, I can never say all these letters, LGBTQ, adolescents, and others. So they're creating an environment that is tolerant for everybody except for who? Your peculiar kid. Your peculiar kid wants to bring his Bible to school. And that, that's just not going to happen. Your peculiar kid, you know, was talking to another kid about Jesus coming to church. That's not going to happen. But we're going to be tolerant and support everybody else, basically, is what they do and is what's going on. And so helping children, number six, and adolescents become more resilient by promoting factors that can promote them from risks such as effective parenting. So this is what's happening. If your kid comes to school and he's acting bizarre, okay, the government has every right to go into your home and take your kid from you or go into your home and investigate what you're doing at home. What are you teaching these kids? What are you showing these kids? Why is your kid acting different? Why is he acting peculiar? You know, uh, there, there's many cases of kids that have mental health issues, you know, some severe, some not so severe. 
that the government is stepping in and making the families medicate the kids against the family's will, you know? And now, I'm a big propo proponent for mental health, you know, and, and, uh, and obviously kids that are very sick, you know, like if a kid's having a seizure, obviously you want to treat that. You want to pray for him, but you want to treat it and stop the seizure because it's catastrophic for the brain. So I'm all about treating kids, but because parents have dropped the ball, families have dropped the ball, now government is having to step into schools, government is having to step into homes and intervene with their evidence-based strategies. Does that make sense? And so that, that, that's what's difficult. That's the challenge we all have as families today. Now, uh, you may have an intact family. You may have a broken family. Notwithstanding, you know, these are important issues, you know, in our country, in our state, in our church, affecting many, many families. So this is why the pastor is so adamant, you know, about men standing in their place and defending what is the home, what is the family, as God designed it, and speaking out. That's why he is the chaplain of Doral. That's why the mayor calls upon him when he needs advice. Because he is a voice in the community. And he wants everybody to be that also. So we could stop, you know, what's going on. All right. So modern man has obviously departed a long way from the plan of God. The plan that God designed and created. And our society is paying a heavy price. And therefore our children, our children's children, our daughters, you know, I mean, everybody's paying a heavy price for it. And so uh, our only hope is really to return to the God that designed the family. And, and this is where evangelism comes in, right? Because I know, I know, I know. If you're at work talking to somebody about Jesus, you know, that's inappropriate. You're not supposed to do that. You know, I mean, what's wrong with you? You're like different. Why do you want to shove your religion down everybody's throat? You know, when our kids walk on college campuses, I always say, they're walking around like spies. Like, you know, they sit in the back of the classroom in the corner and they're like, yeah, you know, and, and they, they're not speaking out because they've been told that they got to shut up, stick the religion in their back pocket and not share it with anybody because, you know, they're shoving the religion down people's throat. But that's not the case. Evangelism is one of the biggest tools that we have as Christians to spread the good news to the world. It's like medicine. Why would in the world would I hold back a medicine that's good for somebody because I don't want to offend them? You know, I'm going to say, listen, you should take this medicine today. I had a patient. He said, I take it every once in a while when I want to. I go, well, you know, it doesn't work like that, you know. It, it just, and that's not the way I told you to take it. Yeah, but, you know, when I feel, I take it. And when I don't feel, I don't take it. I go, well, you know, it doesn't work like that. You know, medication takes about three to five days to get to steady state and start doing its thing. So you can't take it one day, not take it for three days. And so we got the medicine. How are you going to hold back the medicine that's going to cure the world? It's going to cure our school campuses. It's going to cure our, our colleges. So speak out and be bold. I tell our college kids, I says, get your Bible. Put it under your arm. Walk to the front of the class in the middle and sit down. And while everybody's talking about the game on Saturday or the, about the party on Saturday, whatever, open your Bible and read it. And you know what's going to happen? Some of these spike Christians are, you're a Christian? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a Christian too. Let's get together after class. Okay, okay. So, you know? You know, and you know what's also going to happen? I promise you, because it happens to me, and I hear the story all the time, somebody's going to come up to you, you're a Christian. Man, I used to be such a good Christian when I got to college. I just wanted to party, but now I can't stop drinking. Now I'm depressed. My mom, my dad, whatever, what church you go to? And people have brought kids to church, and their life had gotten restored and saved. And one of the kids, you know, he's going to full-time ministry. And he was completely vaccinated after his first year of college, you know. But because somebody cracked up on the Bible, wore a Christian T-shirt, and he could see him from, he says, I was a Christian too. 
Where do you go to church? And he started coming. So don't, that's what evangelism is about for Christians. It's not uh, rude and obnoxious. It's, it's medicine. All right. <clears throat> this is a sociologist. He wrote a book he, called Our Dance Has Turned to Death. This was back in 1979. Do you guys remember what was going on in 1979? You older guys, are you historians? What was going on in 1979? The long gas lines, you remember? The long gas lines, the economy, inflation, dads, moms, whatever. So this guy wrote a book. He's a sociologist called Carl Wilson. Now, he's a Christian. And he kind of uh, wrote there uh, some characteristics of civilizations that he read into, right? What are some of the most powerful civilizations that have ever existed in history? Mayan, Roman, Persian, Babylonian, right? Uh, one of the biggest, most recent ones that we know is the Roman Empire. They're powerful. They were rich. They actually conquered the world practically, you know? And so how did those civilizations fall apart? What happened? How could such a powerful civilization with such a strong army and so much money and gold fall apart? So that was this guy's question. He says, what did, they, what did they do wrong that made them fall apart so that we don't have to repeat the same mistake? Does that make sense? And that's what sociologists do. And so he identified seven typical characteristics within these civilizations that caused them to fall apart. And the first one is men... Reject spiritual and moral development as leaders of families. Now, I promise you, the pastor did not write this, okay? I did not write this. This is a book that was written in 1979 by the sociologist, okay? Men begin to reject spiritual and moral development as leaders of the families. Now, it may be a passive thing, like, eh, I just don't care. Go to church today, but there's a Dolphins game. I don't want to go to church. It could be something passive that they begin to neglect their responsibility as men, what we teach guys here on Mondays. Or it could be something more drastic. I don't want to hear anything of God. I don't want to know of God because of whatever issues, you know, and they specifically just run away from anything that's spiritual. And they begin to engage in moral, uh, moral, uh, immoral stuff. And so th that, that person leaving its place that God has designed for him is a first step in that family coming under the attack of the devil without any defense, okay? It's like if our military would say, you guys are on your own now, Al-Qaeda would take over in no time, and we'd have no defense. So when the man leaves his place, the family has no defense. So let's think about this. How many years, I could pick anybody in here. <clears throat> I'll pick myself. How many years did I spend to become a doctor? Clyde says, too many. I don't want to remember. A lot of years, a lot of books, a lot of hours, a lot of class time. Actually, you're going to spend a lot of time, you know, developing a career. But let me ask you this. How much time do we spend developing our spiritual life, our family? How, many, how, much, time do we, how much time did I spend learning how to become a husband? How much time did I spend learning how to become a father? Very little compared to my career. Very little. Not even a tenth. Nothing. So when I got married, I was like, man, this is hard. I'm a rookie. I'm not prepared for this, you know, by the grace of God. You know, when I became a father, I said, man, I thought marriage was hard. Father's so hard, you know. I'm a rookie at this. I felt like I was a, a basketball player trying to play baseball and getting 100-mile-an-hour pitches thrown at me, you know. I mean, I felt lost, you know, because the world does not prepare us for this mission, Okay. And so men run away or they hide from it because it, sometimes it's overwhelming. So it could be a passive running away or it could be an active running away. Men begin to neglect their families in search of material gain. Where do men escape to when, when things at home are going hard? Where do men escape to? Work. 
Oh, I got to work. And while I'm on call, well, I got to work. I got to work more. You know, we got to pay the bills. You want that nice car? I got to work. You know, I want a nice car, so I got to work. They got to work, got to work, 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 work. You know, and men are putting in 10, 12, 14-hour days. You know, men are working weekends, you know, because they escape to the work. And what does that translate into to the children and the wife? That translates into, man, this guy's never home. You know, he's always out eating, driving a nice car, blah, blah, blah. So what happens is men begin to engage in extramarital relationships, affairs. It could be simple. It could be my best golf buddy, honey. We're going golfing again. Honey, we're going, I know it's our anniversary, but you know, it's a tournament. I'm going golfing. So, you know, it's not all about, because Christians are very, very wise. You know, they say, well, at least I'm not sleeping around. Well, at least I'm not having a friend. No, but you're never home. Well, honey, you know, the American Medical Association has a meeting. I got to be there. I'm one of the speakers, you know. And so I could come up with 300,000 excuses why not to be home. And sometimes as men, we escape the home and we throw ourselves into our job. It could be a good thing. It could be a bad thing. But at the end, you see, the man is not in his place that God designed for him. So we'll see what happens. Women begin to devalue their role as mothers and homemakers. I know all you women, we could talk real now, right? Because when you guys come to my office and sit in front of me and the door's closed, you guys tell me everything, you know? And so I, I know, you know, and it pains me. And sometimes I don't have an answer, you know? Why can't I go out there and be fulfilled as a woman? So what are you saying? That being a mother and being at home, creating an environment where your kids can thrive and be successful and be heroes, that's not fulfilling? What are you saying? That the time you're investing in these children that are going to change the world, these lives. So mommy's one. We got four kids. Mommy's one. If mommy does a good job with those four kids, she's influencing the world times four. You know? And so, so that's not fulfilling? Well, no, of course not, because look at the guy. The guy's never home, so it must not be important. He never wants to spend time with the kids, so it must not be important. It looks like what's important is work and making money and driving a nice car and going on vacation and having good holidays. That looks like what's important. So they begin to devalue their role in the home. And I understand, and there's probably women in here that say there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is the man's not in his place. Okay? Now, it takes courage sometimes as a woman when the man is not in his place is doing something wrong to say, no. I'm going to do what God has called me to do, and I'm going to stand in my place even though he's not in his place. That's a huge challenge. But you know what you're doing? You're saving a family. You're saving children. Okay? And so sometimes it's hard. It's a challenge. And again, I don't blame you. But, you know, we're talking about a, the bigger picture here. Number five, husband and wives begin to compete with each other, and family unit disintegrates. This is how it happens in my world. Well, honey, they offered me this position in Ohio, and they offered you this position in New York. Why do we have to go where they offered you the position? They're paying me more money. Because now it's about the money. Now it's about who's making more money. So because a competitive relationship, rather than a team working together to raise these beautiful children, provide for them what they need to be able to grow up and be successful in life, it becomes a competition. And, you know, when you have two smart people in one home, it could be competitive. You could not potentially disagree on anything because both of them have very good ideas. There's nothing wrong with that, you know? But the bigger picture is a family, is a home unit, is your team. So you got to put yourself aside and do what's right for the family. What are we seeing here? They're not putting themselves aside. One devalued this, the other one devalued that. They're putting themselves first, and now the kids, pfft, you know, they're basically on their own. <clears throat> and so it, it becomes a problem. So what happens is 
this individualism or this egocentric attitude, you know, begins to stir issues and problems in the family. People get divorced. What do they say when they get divorced? When they get married, I, I love you. Oh, the rest of my life with you. When they get divorced, I want to kill you. I hate you. I loathe you. How do you get from dreaming about the person, dreaming about this, dreaming about that, to get to a point where you literally hate somebody, love somebody, is because these steps in a bigger picture, it, it, you become the most important thing in your life, not your wife, not your children, you. It's not important to be where you need to be. It's not important to do the right thing to do what you got to do. You got to go out and make money and, and feel good and feel accepted in society and be fulfilled and get the promotion and get the title and get whatever, you know, and so it becomes an issue. And so, where are the children in this mess? Well, we'll see in a little bit. Men and women lose faith in God and reject all authority over their lives, and, 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 and the family disintegrates. And so these are seven things that this guy identified as a downfall of these families, of communities, of these great nations. You know, he identified it starting with the man. Um, another individual, it just so happens, Carl's not here tonight. I wish he was. But this is another Carl, Zimmerman. He taught for many years at Harvard University in 1947. Now, that wasn't 1979. This was 1947. So you can see that happened in Persia, Babylon, Rome. It could happen to us in this country. In 1947, they were already talking about it. He wrote this book called Family and Civilization. <clears throat> His observations uh, were similar comparing, you know, the, the fall of uh, these great civilizations uh, to this country and what were the things that happened. And he basically observed eight patterns you know, that led to the downward spiral of the culture of that society. And he identified them as, you know, similar things. What's interesting? One in 1947, one in 1979, completely different people. And what I've read about these guys, none of them refer to the person's work. So it's not like they were in cahoots or anything like that. You know, they, they kind of did this individually. They just observed. They just wrote down their observations. Number one, marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. So you could say like what the guy, last guy said, the husband, the materialism, the self-indulgence, the egocentricity leads to the degradation of the marriage. And so the marriage loses its sacredness and is frequently broken by divorce. The traditional meaning of the marriage ceremony is lost. Now look at this. This was in 19, what did I say, 47? Okay. What, what, what's in the courts today? Chaining the meaning of marriage, right? So, so it's there. We're seeing it. It kind of gets more and more uh, power and strength as it goes forward. Number three, feminist movements abound. You look, I could define for you what a feminist is. And I promise you that if anybody in here is a feminist, you know, you, you need to come and speak with uh, the pastor's wife. And you need to clarify. If, if you're calling yourself a feminist erroneously, you're standing for the wrong things, thinking you're feminist, but if you really are feminist, you know, uh, family is just not for you. You know, it's just not. Um, and so I'm not even going to get into that too much. But basically, um, it's the same thing. Is a women make themselves the center of the universe because men are making themselves the center of the universe. What their needs are are more important than what his needs are. What his needs are are more important. Than what, and nobody's playing like a team player. So they're each pulling their way. So you could almost say that feminism is a consequence of men not being where they need to be. You could absolutely say that and be justified. There's increased public disrespect for parents and authority in general. You know, kids, hey, you know, I think I was like 11, 12 years old when I'm like, ah, yeah, yeah, I get it now. These adults, you know, they say this and then they do that. 
They do that, and they, they say they're doing this. And I started, so kids aren't stupid. They begin to see mom and dad pulling their own direction, doing their own things, and they get wise, and they say, well, if they don't care, I don't care. Who cares? Their friends, right? Who cares? Their friends. So the friends become almost like their family. And so kids begin to, like, forget about family, forget about mom, forget about dad, get together, and begin to do their own thing. And promiscuity and rebellion occurs. There's a refusal of the people with traditional marriages to accept family responsibilities. Everybody's going their own way. It cracks me up because when the pastor tells us something, he's just telling you what you ought to do, what would be best. It's like a doctor telling you to take medicine. And then we fight it. Like if he's telling us to do something bad or do something that's bad for us, you know, and people leave the church, storm out of the church. And it's like, okay, I'll see you later or I'll hear about you later because your life is out of whack. He's trying to give you advice to put you in order, you know, but, but you're just not ready for it, you know. And so... Uh, people refuse to fall back into these traditional marriage roles and responsibilities. Number seven, there's a growing desire for an acceptance of adultery is, is evident. So um, I can't, I mean, it, it's crazy what's going on out there. You know, um, it, it, they, they've taken out surveys and they talk about this percentage of men, this percentage of women have extramarital felgia. And the numbers are staggering. And I'm not even going to get into that because it's not appropriate. Um, but nonetheless, you know, uh, what is the sacredness of marriage and of the monogamous relationship that God has designed loses its meaning, its power, its strength, and, and people just wander off. And when you wander off, all bets are off. Number eight, there's an increasing interest and spread of sexual perversion and sex-related crimes. And we're seeing that, right? We're seeing that, like, so perversion uh, is on a spectrum, right? It starts small. And you could say, like, uh, promiscuity is perversion starting small, right? Because you're going around committing to things that you're not committing to, breaking people's hearts, you know, not be responsible with what you need to be responsible. And that has a spectrum. And so we see rock stars, let's say Madonna or let's say uh, Mick Jagger. Let's, what do they end up doing? They end up doing, you know, bi bisexual stuff, you know. And, and what we see is, like, as the perversion continues and, you know, uh, they even begin to... Uh, um, you know, go after children, right? They go after children. And so we see that Dateline special, like all these guys, you know, they could be police officers, judges, doctors, lawyers. They could be professionals, whatever. They're gonna, because that that's, is on the spectrum of perversion. So many times people say, well, I'll never do that. Well, you're doing something. You're like on the road. It's like you're on the turnpike going north, and you say, I'm never going to get to New York. You're going to end up in New York because you're heading north on the turnpike. You better turn around and start going south so you end up in Miami, you know? So all these things are on the spectrum of perversion and, and and so what God created man and woman right to procreate be fruitful and multiply and have babies so what is man's perversion children don't matter family don't matter I'm just going to go out there and self-indulge and do what feels good right and so that that's the that's the, the spectrum of, of, uh, of perversion okay I would love to see if anybody has questions but okay let's move forward it's nine o'clock we'll go fast lamentations chapter five let's go everybody lamentations chapter five so now we're going further back from 1947. We're going back to Lamentations, and the Old Testament in the Bible goes way, 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 way back. And we're going to see uh, similar things. So why are we seeing these things? Um, because, like I said, there's symptoms, right? There's symptoms, there's signs. What's a symptom? It says, okay, you have a fever. I don't know what you have, but you have an infection. 
So we got to dig further, right? Or, or you're walking crooked, you have a broken bone, you know, that's a sign. We got to figure out what's going on. We don't leave it like that. So the reason I'm sharing this is you guys can see these things in friends. You guys can see this in your own family and begin to correct and treat with the medicine that we talked about, Jesus, you know, these, these ailments. And so Lamentations 5, it says, verse 1, remember, Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our reproach. That, that could almost be written today. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We have become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. Dad's not home. There's a dad, but yet there's orphans. That doesn't make sense. You know, there, there's, there's a husband, but yet there's a widow. It doesn't make sense because dad's not there. Dad's not around. Today I was telling a veteran because we were talking about he's 53 years old. He's stuck on drugs, you know. He relapsed because he got into fight with them. He relapsed, you know. And then he said something about Christianity. He says, you know, and I started, you know, knocking away at him. He's 53 years old. He said, I never knew what it was to be a son or to be a father. I'm learning now what that is. And I know I'm acting like a child. And he basically was telling me that he's an orphan. I said, you know what? God is a God, is a father of orphans. So you got the best father in the world. You just got to come under that. And sometimes it means coming under somebody in church that you respect, that you're accountable to, that you admire, that, you, that could be a mentor to you. Sometimes it means, you know, being loyal and, and, and faithful at work. There's many forms how you could learn how to be a son and how to be faithful and not be an orphan. You're an orphan because you're choosing not to come under father. And this is basically what I told him. You know what? He received. And when he left, he shook my hand. He was grateful and whatever. So 53 years old. I'm only 45, you know, but I'm telling this guy how to be a son, you know. So, you know, uh, these guys have fathers, but they're orphans for all intents and purposes. It says, we have submitted to Egypt and Assyria uh, to get enough bread. So they're going not to the peculiar people, the chosen people, but they're going to the people that, you know, are living crazy to get their sustenance. Our fathers sin and are no more. It is we who have borne their iniquities. The father's actions inevitably affect the children, right? But the antidote is Christ. Christ is the antidote. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. So even the lowest, the lowest, the lowest of society, the slaves were above them because their families were completely disintegrated. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as oven because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the cities of Judah. So they're working their tails off, hot sun, they're working, and they're not producing much. They're still in a famine. And their young women, which is basically the, the fruit of a nation is the women, right? The women are the one that produces children, and that's what makes nations grow. So they're being plundered and taken away by these rival nations. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders were not respected. So elders don't have a voice. That's one of the signs of a falling, you know, civilization. Elders speak. I love it. You know, when we were up in, in, in Lubbock, you know, all these kids are, yes, sir, yes, ma'am, blah, blah. And I say this, I mean, it may frustrate some of you people. But nonetheless, I love the kids when they call me dude. Dude! I'm like, what? You just call me dude? I'm your dude? You know? Or, you know, uh, you know the, the, the way, you know, in Westwood, you know, the, the way... You know, kids talk to the teachers, you know. They say, hey, buddy, hey, dude, you know, blah, blah. You know, it's like, and I'm like, whoa. You know, it's not a big deal. Big deal. Kid calls me, dude, it doesn't affect me a bit. I'm still who I am. It doesn't bother me, whatever. But it affects him. Because if he doesn't respect me, 
enough to call me sir, mister, whatever, where is he at? You know, what is he doing? You know, so my concern isn't so much for the adult or whatever, but it is for the system. When kids are disrespecting the teachers, their principals, their pastors, their youth pastors, like that's a big, big red flag because we see that right before people, you know, begin to fall. And so always honor the people God has put over your life. Always, 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 always. Not for them, but for you. Amen? That's what I told my, my girls. I used to tell them, listen, I don't care. You know, I was around a long time before you got here, but I'm not going to let you talk to me like that for your own good. As long as you're on my roof, I'm going to protect you. And if I have to do whatever I got to do, you're not going to talk to me like that. Not for me because I could care less, but for you. Because they come under God's judgment. They lose God's favor in their life. Things will come upon them because they're talking to me like that. It doesn't affect me, right? It affects me to the degree that they get hurt or something happens to them. But, you know, so I make them talk to me appropriately. I teach them how to talk to me and how to honor me, you know, at all costs because it's important. It says, the joy of our hearts has ceased. Our dancing has been turned into mourning. That was the title of this guy's book. The crown has fallen from our head. Woe to us, for we have sinned. Because of this, our heart is faint. Because of these things, our eyes are dim. And there's no reason in the world why we as Christians that have the whole counsel of God, that are a chosen generation of peculiar people, that have the word of God, that have prayer, that have the Holy Spirit, have the grace of God upon our lives, for us to be walking around defeated. Many times we're walking around defeated because our lives are out of order. Many times we're walking around defeated because we're not keeping the things that are important in their proper place. We're despising them, right? We're undermining the things that God has designed and set in place. And so these people were a defeated people. They, I mean, they're going through a tough time. It says, because Mount Zion, which lays desolate, foxes prowl on it. You, O Lord, rule forever. Your throne is from generation to generation. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us so long? So you can see they were in a dire straits, right? But you also see that they're starting to look up the right direction. So tonight, you know, I, I, I tell people, I, I always want to be like Joel Olstein. I always want to give people an encouragement sitting in mouse keeping, you know, and, and if, I don't know why these things, you know, God gives them to me like this, but this is what it is. Um, nonetheless, you know, no matter what situation you're in, if you turn your eyes up, let's say nothing changes. You are where you are. Some of my guys, when they relapse, they feel a lot of guilt, a lot of shame. They feel like horrible. They feel like I'm never going to change or whatever. Okay, stop. Don't take a step. Just look up. When you do that and God comes down, he will begin to change things. So our only responsibility is not to be heroes and change everything. Our only responsibility is to look up and cry out to God like Israel did. Read the book of Judges. They must have done this more than a dozen times. And it works. Every single time they looked up to God, God sent a deliverer and rescued them, right? So notwithstanding the situation that we're in now, we have in here young guys like Joseph, you know, a little older, pre-college, college, you know, young married, older married, you know, uh, grandparents. We have here a whole, it's so hard to talk in front of a crowd like this, you know, <laughs> because, you know, you're inevitably going to offend somebody, right? But let me just say this. No matter what place you are in life, no matter where you're at, no matter where your situation is, you could do one or two things. You can make excuses. Poor me, I never had a dad. I never had a... Well, what does the Bible say? The Bible says that every day his mercies are new. So starting, let's say, this, tomorrow morning. Tomorrow morning you get up, you're a champion. You're a world changer. You're a peculiar person. 
your chosen generation. Notwithstanding what you've gone through in the past, you could start brand new tomorrow and be an ambassador for the kingdom of God. And when I share these things, it's so that going forward, we begin to walk in excellence according to the things that God teaches us. And if you're young and not married, you could have a wonderful family one day, notwithstanding how your family was when you were young. You, does that make sense? If, if you were living under not such a perfect dad, my dad wasn't perfect, you know, but he was a daddy, but he wasn't perfect. You know, do I keep repeating the things that he did or do I do things better? I do things better. The things he taught me that were good, I, I repeat them. The things that he did that were not so good, what, I leave them behind. And my son's going to do 20 times better than I do. So there is no condemnation, the Bible says, to those that are in Christ Jesus. So we don't walk in condemnation and defeat. We walk in victory, right? We confront the challenge with the Lord, and we are overcomers. Does that make sense? So notwithstanding what your story is or what your background is, and I told this guy today, I says, man, you can sit down with a psychologist, and he'll go at it with you for a couple of months, a couple of years, just lamenting how you grew up, all your hardships, all the challenges, how you were beat and abused, and whatever. And I'm not minimizing that. I'm not minimizing that. Because that is horrible for a young person to have to go through that. But I said, but today, what choices are you making today? Where are you at today? You know, so tomorrow begin to make good choices and starting with looking up and crying out to God and God will transform and, and, and bring a, a transformation to your life. And so that's the story of these individuals and lamentations. What you see is that they were going through a lot of hardships, but they looked up. And when they looked up, verse 21, it says, It's going to jump like five slides now. Okay, there it is. This is a cry. Restore us to you, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days of old. So, you know, the, the first thing, identify that you have a problem. The first thing, identify that there's a problem, whether it's in your own home, in your family's home, in whatever's home. You know, it's somebody in the church that, that you're working with. Identify, you know, there's a problem. Be honest, there's a problem. You know, I need help in this, you know. And cry out to God, God, I need restoration. I need to be renewed. There's no reason in the world, okay, uh, that, that we should just give up on anybody. There's no reason in the world why we should give up on ourselves. Because God is a specialist in restoring things that are broken. And many times we give up before we're even broken. But even if you're broken, like Yvette said tonight, God could even resurrect somebody that's dead. So if your family is dead and broken and falling apart and you feel like there's no hope, look up to the heavens, cry to God and say, God, restore, God, renew. And God will, that's especially, and I promise you, you will come to church one day and you will give a testimony. And we've heard them. We've heard a lot of testimonies from you guys of things that were impossible, were far gone, there was no hope for, and then God. And things changed. So let's go ahead and stand to our feet tonight as we close. And let's, let's just, look, you know, it's an issue of, I promise you, from the youngest one in here to the oldest one here tonight, if there is something that's weighing heavy on your heart, if there's a concern that you've been carrying with for many months, many years, tonight, God could break that. God could bring that very thing that you've been carrying for so long to restoration and renew it. But it's got to be you that ask God to intervene because God is not going to stick his hand in something he's not invited to stick his hand into. So you just got to be you to look up to the heavens and say, Lord, restore. Lord, renew. And that, that's, that's what the call is tonight. 
The call is to get back to the foundation that God designed and for us to fall in line with that. And, and we struggle and we have hard times and we have excuses and we have reasons. And I hear them all day, every day, you know. And if it's that bad, I could give you a pill, no. But, you know, look up to the heavens. Look up to the heavens. God could restore. If God could heal somebody of cancer, if God could heal somebody of AIDS, if God could heal somebody of their sight, of their, of their hearing, God could heal your brain, your depression, your anxiety. God could heal, hear, uh, heal your, your, your hurt, your pain. You know, uh, God could heal that. You know, and you could walk out of here tonight, a new person completely restored and renewed with new strength and hope for the future. And when there's hope for the future, you're a champion. You're good to go. I mean, there's not a whole lot else that, that we got to do. We just want to encourage you and ignite you tonight to trust God, surrender to God, and God will do it. God will be faithful. He'll do it because he loves you. He knows what you need. We just got to look up to him and ask him in Second uh, Chronicles. It says... If my people who are called by my name, you are his people. Remember, you're peculiar. You're special. Close your eyes for a second tonight. Just for a second, know that he's your father. And know that he calls you peculiar, special. His son, his daughter tonight. He's looking out for you more so than anybody else you could imagine. He's got your back. He's not going to let you fall. He's not going to let you carry around defeated. But he's going to restore and he's going to renew. He's going to put everything in its place. Just like when he heals cancer, he puts all those cells in order and gets them to function the way he wants them to. He's going to heal the cancer of your family. He's going to heal the cancer of your home. He's going to put all those things in order. He's going to put them in the right place. If we humble ourselves and pray and seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, it says, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Amen? It starts with our families. It starts with our homes. It starts with a heavy-duty commitment of the men here tonight, the women here tonight, the children here tonight, saying, I'm going to honor God. I'm going to obey God. I'm going to do what's right. No matter what, no excuses. I'm going to do what's right. And God will come and heal our land. And we'll enjoy the fruits of that. Our, our children, our grandchildren, our great-grandchildren, We'll live in a restored land, in a blessed land, a land of prosperity. But it starts in the home. It starts with the decision you make, how you speak to your husband, how you speak to your wife, how you treat your children. It all starts at the home. So let's pray tonight. Father God, we bless your name and we thank you because we know that you have what's best in mind for each and every person that's here tonight. Lord, you have not forgotten about one. But you say that if there's 99 and one goes astray, that you're going to follow that one and find it and bring it back, Lord. And tonight there may be that one family, Lord, that one person here tonight that says, yeah, but my situation is very, very, very difficult. There's just no way things are going to change. It's too far gone. Lord, be a miracle worker in this person's life, Lord. I ask you in the name of Jesus, Lord, that you would just step in in a supernatural way, Lord, and bring renewal and restore, Lord, what is broken, Father God. Bring strength, Father God, to those weakened muscles, Father God. That you will restore, Lord, to sanity those thoughts, Lord, that lead them astray, Lord, and trick them and deceive them, saying there's no hope, there's no purpose. Lord, that you would just restore them from their head down to their toes, Father God. Put everything in place, Lord Jesus. Father God, I also pray that we would be light to this world, Father God, that we would shine bright, Lord, that we would speak out, Lord, and do what we needed to do our part, Father God, to bring restoration to this land, Father. Lord, you said that we are the salt of the earth, and the salt 
loses its flavor, Lord, what is to become of the earth? What is to become of the earth, Father God? It implies rot. It implies something smelly and disgusting, Father God. But we will be the salt, Father God. We commit tonight, Lord Jesus, that we will be the salt, Father God. And we look to you for strength. We look to you for grace, Father God. Tonight, if you're here, I'm going to ask everybody to close their eyes and bow their heads. If tonight you want to go ahead and, and, and in a sign of uh, um, just surrender, you want to lift your hand tonight and say, Lord, I need a special miracle in my family. Go ahead and raise your hand to here tonight. I'm going to see you. I'm going to agree with you. I'm going to pray with you. I see you. I see you back there. Let's, let's just raise our hands and, and, and we're going to trust God. We're going to believe in God. And I'm going to pray and agree with you tonight. Lord, in the name of Jesus, these people that have lifted their hands, Lord, I trust that whatever the situation is, Lord, that you know, you know, you know, you know, you know them from the womb of their mother, Father God, to the time, Lord, that, that you will take them up to be with you, Father God. You know their needs, you know their heart, Father God, you know their strengths, you know their weaknesses. I pray that tonight you be father to these people, Father, that you would just bring restoration to their minds, to their hearts, Father God, that you would just heal their hurts, that you would restore, Father God, their families, Lord Jesus, and meet their needs, Father God, right there where they're at, Father God. They're crying out to you tonight, Father God, and you promised that if your people would humble themselves, that you would bring restoration, you would bring healing, Father God. We pray for tonight for the families, for the husbands, for the wives, for the children that are out of order, that are out of place, that are suffering, Lord, the thorns and the scorn of being not in your house, Father God. We pray right now in the name of Jesus for their lives, Lord. We pray a special hedge of thorns around them, Father God. And we pray, Lord, that you would reserve them for your kingdom, Father God. And although our eyes may not see something transformational, we may not see change, Father God. Tonight, we surrender them to you, Lord. And we trust that you will be the one that will bring them, Lord, into your kingdom, Father God. In your time and in your place, Lord. We just surrender them tonight, Lord. And we trust you with their life, Father God. We surrender them to you tonight, Father God. And we trust that you will do the work that is necessary. Father God, we pray these things in Jesus' name, Lord. And we thank you. Amen. Amen.